I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I don't think it's a secret that in dozens of First Nations communities around this country, conditions are grim. We have covered boil water orders on this program before. We've discussed how difficult it is for many First Nations to bring in doctors and other skilled professionals. In many communities, buildings are badly in need of repair or replacement. And then, of course, there's money or rather the lack of it. But I am not sure Canadians understand, and I'm not sure because I didn't understand it myself, is how much of this stems from the lack of money and for many First Nations, how much responsibility the federal government bears for that lack. You see, we need to discuss the default prevention and management policy, something most of us have probably never heard of. For decades, this policy was used to take away control of budgets and finances from First Nations leaders and put them in the hands of what are called default managers appointed by the government to supposedly better manage a First Nations finances. Of course, when you actually look at the data, as a massive investigation recently did, what you find is the opposite. What you find is that when you take control of a First Nations finances over people in that community, that community ends up worse off. You might imagine that would be an intuitive thing to assume. And yet, here we are. So how did we get here? And what comes next? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Patty Sontag is an investigative journalist and a data journalist. She worked with a huge team on this project for the National Observer. Hello, Patty. Hi, thanks for having me. You're most welcome. Can you begin by telling us about Gull Bay First Nation? The project says that it's currently recovering. So recovering from what? What have they been through? Gull Bay is a small First Nation north of Thunder Bay. It has been through a series of difficulties. For example, starting in 2004, there was an assessment of the housing and it found that about half of the 100 homes on reserve needed to be torn down. And the chief and council and residents had to come up with a series of solutions to replace the, the homes. It went, it happened really gradually. And so they replaced them and started constructing new homes. So they found that about half the homes needed to be replaced. And now things are really looking up after, you know, a long stretch of time with a number of the homes replaced and uh, construction underway. There was a boil water advisory that officially started in 2009, but anecdotally appears to have started in the ni- in 1999. A plant that was scheduled to open in 2002 
didn't. And so people have been boiling their water ever since. So notice went out um, to the community in the spring and people are, are drinking the water now and the uh, boil water advisory will be lifted officially pretty soon. And what's less well known is the court struggles that the First Nation followed, uh, went through in the early 2000s, uh, fighting to retain the chief and council, fighting to see their financial records, and the First Nation was in debt. The chief Chief Wilfred King says the debt started at two million and ballooned to eleven million and is now now over with. So this series of events is something that you wouldn't see in a non-indigenous community. You mentioned that they were fighting to see their finances, and then you mentioned that they were eleven million dollars in debt. If they can't see their finances, how did they end up $11 million in debt? We know that in the early 90s, Gull Bay First Nation had taken a loan from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation with Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada backing the loan. And we also know from court documents, ISC and, the, and Chief King, that around 1995, Gull Bay was moved into the DPMP and soon after that into third-party management. A general theme that turned up in many interviews is that First Nations are often reluctant or unable to charge rent, especially if residents were impoverished. And we also know that in the midst of legal struggles over a few different things, Indigenous Services Canada appointed a new third-party manager. Gull Bay and other First Nations and DPMP managers and the Auditor Generals all pointed out that under first under third-party managers, debts tended to increase. It was because, especially in the early 2000s, there were actual mechanisms in the policy that made it more difficult to pay down debt for the third-party managers. So all of these factors coincide, you know, the, t- the time period cons- coincides with observations about the worst failings of the policy during that time. It's little known in Canada that the federal government, federal officials have options for seizing control of a First Nations finances. And First Nations were under this policy from sometime in the 1990s at least until this very day right now. When that happened, um, not only did the First Nation lose control, sometimes access to their records, they were also forced to pay for these financial managers. So they had no supervisory ability. It didn't matter how poorly the manager was performing, how the person was qualified, whether they had qualifications. The First Nation had to pay for this person who was hired by, at the time, Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. Can you explain a little more about that? Like, what's this program called? How can the government just appoint someone to take over Indigenous finances? First Nations receive funds from the federal government under a series of transfers and grants. And so this is very different from a non-Indigenous First Nation because these transfers and grants are governed by very strict rules as if First Nations leaders, the chief and council, were federal employees. So a really good contrast is between a non-Indigenous and an Indigenous nation and how a disaster is is handled. So I'm from Fernie, B.C., 
And if there's a flood in Fernie, and a bridge is washed out, the mayor of Fernie will look at the budget with the council and probably delay a project might be a, a good strategy. So if there's a new community centre planned, delay the community centre, devote the fund, those funds to building the bridge and or rebuilding the bridge, and that'll be called fiscal prudence. In fact, it may gain the trust of the community and the mayor and her council may be re-elected on the basis of making good decisions. But in a First Nation, that same practice will be called mismanagement by the federal government. So if the First Nation has money to devote, has received money, a grant to, do, to build a community centre, that money must be devoted to the community centre exactly as proposed and on schedule. And so if money is devoted in a disaster from one source of funding to another budget, then it's labeled mismanagement. And the federal government has the option of placing the First Nation under this policy, which is called the default prevention and management policy. So this has had traumatic effects. People who in people lost their jobs. Um, people lost the trust of their communities. Chiefs and councils were voted out for following, in some cases, exactly the same practices as are standard and praiseworthy in non-Indigenous communities. Do we have any idea uh, how often this policy has been used? It sounds like something that should, at the very least, require like extenuating circumstances, but you're not describing it that way. Well, there's a lot of regional variation. That's really clear in the data. So 90% of First Nations in Manitoba were administered under one of the forms of this policy. There were three forms, one of which involves no supervision, simply following a plan, and up to third-party management, which is where an outside manager has complete control of the finances. So in Manitoba, as I said, 90% of First Nations were under this policy. In some provinces, like BC, it could be as low as, as uh, 14%. So that tells us that you know, these were decisions by regional officials, and it depended on how regional offices approached First Nations. So tell me about your investigation then with the National Observer. What were you guys trying to discover about this policy? Well, across the political spectrum, your reaction is the same as what we've seen um, since this this was published. There's sort of like a whoa moment. People seem to be able to agree that federal government reaching into uh, communities affairs, an extreme moment. So we looked at all First Nations administered under this policy between 2008 and 2016, as far as records were available. And we found that the conditions on reserve got worse, not better, after this policy was put in place. So people's homes went into disrepair and boil water advisories were twice as likely. And in contrast, so this was the full data set for all, all the First Nations recognized by the federal government. This is, there's more than 600. And so in First Nations where this policy wasn't in place, the state of housing improved. Uh, Long-term boil water advisories were much less, less frequent. 
And it's really important to note, for me to note here, that the long-term boil water advisories followed the date on which the policy was imposed. What does that mean? Like the boil water advisories only showed up after the finances were taken over? Yes, exactly. So it tells us that as the records from the time show, you know, there were a series of very searing reports from the auditors generals and from within Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada itself talking about the failures of this policy. I've really never seen such blunt language. So the problems that showed up with this po- this policy were myriad. So third party managers couldn't pay down the debts in some cases if a First Nation was in debt. The third party managers were not supervised by INAC and the First Nations didn't have the, the option of trying to supervise them. They were drawing, in some cases, high salaries and the First Nation had no option but to pay it. The tendering process didn't follow federal rules. Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada was ordered to you know, amend this, this issue. So there were a series of reports once the policy was formalized in 2001, pointing out all of the failures of this policy within government. It wasn't news to anybody. There, We found more than a dozen court cases in which First Nations cha- challenged various aspects of this policy. There was a Senate committee hearing in 2017 where all of these issues were again surfaced. All of these problems came up over and over again. And we found 114 First Nations administered under the co-management or third-party management versions of this policy between 2008 and 2016, which altogether represents, I don't even know how many people, but so many families affected. How did this go on for so long if... As you say, there are so many reports and so much evidence, within the government at least, even if we didn't see them, that it's not working. Well, it all seems to hinge on the word default. Okay? So the, the name of the policy itself implies that these First Nations were somehow to blame, that First Nations leaders couldn't manage their mo- the money. And so our discussion of this policy now is really about how this history is and has been written. The fact is that at least some of these cases involved people making very sensible decisions. At least some of these cases were punitive. The federal government has, in a document dated to about 2016, noted that this policy was used to punish First Nations, a word that came up over and over again. One of the observers called it a series of political hits. And it it boils down to that essential relationship between Canada and First Nations, which has been not been an equal one. It's a paternalistic one. And the idea that, hey, you can't manage this money, so I'm going to hold on to it. Which we found, going back as far as I found uh, a mention of it in, in an 1840s Upper Canada document. It was at a time when Canada was starting to transition from payments in in terms of hard goods like blankets and kettles to cash payments. 
And an official from Upper Canada was expressing reluctance to make cash payments with exactly this argument. So this has been around in one form or another, or at least the attitude behind it has been, uh, basically since colonization. Um, 2017, you mentioned it kind of became clear to everybody in government just how awful this looked. What did they do about it? The government of Canada put in place a series of pilot projects in 2016 examining new approaches, what's called a new fiscal relationship. I think that happened in at least six First Nations, and a report is due this fall on how best to replace or update the policy, and the government of Canada has committed to replacing it. There's quite a few different solutions on on the table. It's really important for everyone to remember that with 600 with 600 First Nations, each with its own traditions of governance, there is no one approach that's going to work here. The most important thing seems to be, which truth the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, pointed everyone toward, was a nation to nation relationship rather than the paternalistic relationship that has been in place for all this time. So they've been planning to replace it or studying how to replace it since 2017. Meanwhile, you mentioned earlier that this is uh, still being used in some First Nations. How many and and what is it like now? Like, presumably they're still not making all these decisions. There's 93 First Nations under this policy today. One, only one is in the most stringent form, the third party management. The relationship by some accounts is quite different with exceptions. You know, 93 First Nations is 93 different experiences of this policy and, you know, the various personalities and and people involved. So one of the issues that any small community faces is finding staff who are able to handle like this very advanced financial work. In the 2017 committee hearings, it was said that even financial professionals with, you know, lots of experience and very advanced credentials weren't able to administer First Nations finances because of the sheer complexity of dealing with all the different federal requirements. So one of the the issues that has come up again and again is simply making sure that there are people available to provide the training and sometimes the services. So the letter of the law hasn't really changed, but the hope, I guess, is that in recent years, the spirit of the way it's executed has? Well, the roots of this policy are underfunding of First Nations. What Indigenous Services Canada said after um, looking at the analyses was the roots of this policy are in underfunding that goes back decades. If a First Nation didn't have sufficient funding, which by all accounts across the board for decades, the uh, level of underfunding was at least 30% of all programming, 30% of any program you care to think about from roads to water plants to, you know, uh, education, you name it. Our history, historically, Canadian government has underfunded First Nations. And so when First Nations encountered a disaster like a fire or a flood, there was no option in many cases except to move funding from one program to another which, as Indigenous Services Canada said, 
was um, how how this happened um, during those decades for the most part. Um, so Indigenous Services Canada didn't dispute the analysis. Um, and so the data that we've gathered offers a good basis for beginning the discussion of how how do we rethink how this was administered? So this is the last question that I want to ask you about, and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned uh, the response from Indigenous Services Canada because my question is, I guess, what comes next? It sounds like uh, your reporting has kind of upped the urgency here, which is great. But I mean, technically, are we still just sitting here waiting for? ISC to come up with something that will totally replace this policy, which they've been trying to do for five years, right? Well, there are some stars in financial management who are from First Nations backgrounds. And I spoke to person after person who had made it really big in in financial management, like on a global scale, and then went back to the First Nation or to a nonprofit to start tackling these problems. Financial managers have really taken the lead on this and have been um, suggesting solutions based on their experience and expertise. So are you hopeful that this change is made sooner rather than later? And are you more hopeful after you finished this project than you were when you started it? I was pretty devastated to see how this, this policy has been rooted in the language of colonialism and and how despite the different auditor general's reports and internal reports, the policy continued on and on. So I think this is part of a much larger discussion about Canada's history and its present. And I don't think there are any quick fixes. I think this is a generations-long discussion. Well, Patty, thank you so much for uh, doing the work and making it uh, more plain for the rest of us to see just how badly things have been handled. I'd like to point out that it wasn't just me. A number of reporters and students who contributed to this uh, reporting, Shiri Pasternak and Ryan Moore, leading the reporting on this. There's also people like Robert Houle, Declan Keogh, and others who contributed files and expertise. This goes back to a project called Clean Water Broken Promises, which launched some of this reporting. Well, it's incredibly thorough and uh, pretty revelatory. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Patty Sontag reporting for The National Observer. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. And yes, please take the listener survey. It'll only be around for one more week. I promise I will stop bothering you soon. We very much appreciate all those of you who have filled it out already. If you want to talk to us elsewhere, you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can talk to us anytime with an email, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And you can leave a voicemail, if you wish, 416-935-5935. If you're listening right now in a podcast player that lets you rate or review or click a little button to share it with friends, we'd love it if you did that too. Every little bit counts. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.